Thank you for listening to this recording from Chestnut Hill Baptist Church. Today, Pastor David Seip preaches a sermon called The Barren Tree for Palm Sunday, preaching out of Mark chapter 11. We hope you find this message valuable and enriching. Our scripture reading this morning is from the Gospel of Mark, the 11th chapter, beginning in verse 12, 12 through 14. Mark 11, 12 through 14. I'm reading out of the NIV translation. And in honor of God's word, let's stand while I read. This is the word of God to us this morning. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. May God illuminate our hearts with this truth from his word this morning. Thank you. Please be seated. It was Monday of Passion Week. There were four days left and so much to be done. Our Lord was entertained during those last days at the home of Lazarus in Bethany. It was an easy walk from Jerusalem. Each morning he walked to the city and preached to the multitudes that thronged to hear him. And late at night, weary, he retraced his steps back to Bethany. On this particular morning that we just read about, as he drew near to the city with some of his disciples, it said that he was hungry. And so we're left to wonder, had Martha, the busy housewife, neglected to prepare a meal for him that morning? Or had he, in deference to the Jewish law, refused to break his fast before the early sacrifice? Or had he spent a previous night on the mountainside in prayer? In any case, we're told he was hungry. And here was a fig tree by the roadside in full foliage. He approached lifted the leaves, and there was nothing there. And he said, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. The next day, certain pilgrims came that way, and they saw the fig tree withered and said, there's a worm at its root, or perhaps the the sun scorched it. But as his disciples passed by, they remembered the master's words, and Peter said, behold, The fig tree which you have cursed is withered away. Our question this morning is why did Jesus curse the fig tree? Have you ever wondered why that that story is placed there in scripture for us? Why did he curse that fig tree? Not for its unsightliness, because while its neighboring trees stood there bare and unsightly, no leaves, it was adorned with foliage. Nor was it for its its barrenness. There was no reason why it should be bearing fruit in that season. We're told that right in scripture. Our verse tells us that it wasn't the season for figs. So why was the fig tree cursed? And the answer is it was cursed for being false. It was cursed for being false. It boasted itself above all of its fellow trees as a fruitful tree. Because the fig tree, you see, it puts forth its fruit, 
before it puts forth its leaves. It seems to say, the other trees have nothing but swelling buds, yet here am I in full leaf. But for all of its boasting, there was nothing to show. There was no fruitfulness. It wasn't that Christ liked to curse living things. He didn't come, we're told in scripture, to destroy, but to save. His miracles were full of mercy. The opening of blind eyes, the wiping away of leper scales, the healing of broken hearts. A great truth, however, was to be taught, and Christ wanted to teach it. The fig tree was his. He made it, and because it was standing alongside the road, no man owned it. And so may not the Son of God have the, the right to go among his own trees and to, to choose one for a mighty use if he chose to do so? The cursing of this barren tree formed a parable for us to see and to, to understand, and it taught this lesson. The penalty of an empty profession is eternal emptiness. The penalty of an empty profession is eternal emptiness. The outcome of fruitlessness in the probationary life that we live in is barrenness forever. The lesson was primarily addressed to the Jews. They were a chosen people, we're told. But chosen for what? Chosen to what? Not to a peculiar right in the, the kingdom so much as a peculiar task and peculiar responsibilities. And at the time when the nations were wandering away from truth and righteousness, it pleased God to call Abram out of Ur, the, the Chaldees, that he and his children should become the depositories of the true religion and of the, the hope of the, the coming Messiah that they sought and should pass on that blessing, that blessed heritage to the coming age. And to this end, they were entrusted with the oracles in which were recorded the hope of Israel, that is the, the coming of the Messiah who should deliver the world from sin to the same end that they had the temple with its elaborate ceremonials in which the labor, the brazen altar, the table of showbread, the, the golden candlestick, all told of the lamb slain with the, from the foundation of the world, a lamb whose offering on Calvary was to bring about the glorious restitution of all things. And to the same end, they were secluded in the promised land, a, a little strip of country hemmed in by the sea and the, the desert and the mountains where they were to dwell as a separated people holding in trust their great responsibility and awaiting the coming of the promised one. But what was the outcome? What was the outcome? They became the proudest people on earth insomuch as they had no dealings with the nations around them. They held their scriptures as a, a fetish. The word of God was 
overlaid with the traditions of the, of the elders. The temple came to be the center of an empty ritualism of which, as the Bible tells us, the Lord grew weary. To what purpose, said the Lord, is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me? I'm full of the burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts. Bring no more vain offerings. Your incense is an abomination unto me. The new moons and Sabbaths and calling of assemblies I cannot away with. I'm weary to bear them. They were scrupulous, you see, in the observances of all of the outward forms of religion. They paid tithes of mint and anus and cumin. They broadened their phylacteries. They made long prayers at the corners of the streets to be seen by men, we're told. Life had wholly gone out of their devotion. You may clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, said the Lord. But within, they are full of extortion and excess. And again, he says, you're like unto whited sepulchers, which are fair without and within full of dead man's bones and uncleanness. The nation was false to its great responsibility. While keeping up this show of righteousness, it had wandered far from God. The Messiah, the hope of Israel, had so far lost its hold upon them that when the Messiah came, whom they should have received with acclamations of welcome, he had for them no form of pleasantness, we're told. And there was no beauty in him that they should desire him. And whereas they had been chosen to receive the Christ and glorify him before all the people, they let him out beyond their walls and they put him to a disgraceful death. For this cowardice of duty, for this abundance of foliage, Without fruit, the curse of barrenness passed upon the Jewish people. A people of great intellect, of splendid culture, of vast wealth, of glorious history, of an unparalleled lineage. They're the one great people who are without apparent influence on the world's destiny or the great movements of succeeding ages. The old wall of Jerusalem, there's a, a span of large ancient blocks where the Jews are wont to assemble and sorrowfully read over the records of their, their past glory. It's their wailing place, their wailing wall. They sit rocking to and fro, sobbing their, their prayers into the various crevices of that wall. The barren tree is withered stripped of its leaves and also its fruit, the chosen people false to their duty and their destiny are doomed to perpetual fruitlessness. But the lesson comes nearer to home as well. It's for the followers of Christ. 
We also are a chosen people. It's written, he gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. And the good works here referred to have reference to the propagation of the gospel of Christ. The work which Israel failed to do is laid upon us, namely to transmit the true religion to coming generations and to spread abroad the gospel of the Messiah until all the nations should bow before him. And we profess great things. The tree puts forth a luxuriant foliage in which the world as well as our master has reason to expect much fruit from us. We profess repentance, that is, hatred and abandonment of sin. We profess regeneration, that is, a new life in Christ Jesus, new hopes, new purposes and aspirations. We profess sanctification, that is, a, a building up of character under the influence of the Holy Spirit in the in imitation of Christ. We profess to be the servants of our Lord, anxious to follow in his footsteps in the winning of souls and the hastening of the, the kingdom of truth and righteousness. And we profess an entire consecration, time, talents, possessions, all laid before our master's feet. And we profess to follow that our Life here is but a handbreadth of that we journey toward a, a better country, even a heavenly country, so that our con conversation should not be here but in heaven and our lives be hid with Christ in God. The tree that bears such leaves should surely be abundantly fruitful. What manner of persons ought we to be? the fruit which should naturally be expected of us under these circumstances is of two kinds. The first is character. Character, we're called to be saints and, and holy people. You remember how Saint Anthony is represented sitting in his cave with downcast face, clad in hair cloth and bearing the marks of long fasting, a a crucifix over him, a skull beside him. But this is not the saint of modern times. He is rather a man among men, truthful, upright, one who meets his honest obligations, bows and pays to his own hurt and want, good-tempered at home, reverent everywhere, charitable and kind toward all. And you recall how St. Cecilia is represented with harp in hand, halo about her brow, and eyes uplifted toward an angel choir. But that's not the saint of modern times. No, rather an elect lady who lays her hands to the, the spindle and makes strength and honor her clothing, who reaches forth her hands to the needy and fears the Lord true and gentle in her appointed place. 
It is such saintliness that should be expected of those who follow Christ. The other form is duty. Duty, by which we mean loyalty to the supreme obligation of the Christian life, which is to do one's utmost for the deliverance of this world from the shame and the bondage of sin. And here is a a world lying in darkness. Here's the cross uplifted in its midst. And here's the voice saying, go ye evangelize. And our Lord came into the world to save it by his self-denial. And he said, as the Father hath sent me, so I send you. We're to make our power felt, to make our community better in the sweetening of social life, in the winning of souls. Ye are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing. You're the light of the world, Scripture tells us. Let your light so shine that men may see your good works and glorify God. But the lesson has still further application to non-Christians. To non-Christians. We have no profession, they say. But yes, they do. They profess great things. They put forth an abundance of leaves. They profess a complete self-sufficiency. They feel no need of prayer. They they rise in the morning and enter upon the, the dangers of traveling through an unknown country without calling for help and guidance from above. And in this, they avow themselves to be able to get along without God. They profess to have no need of the atoning work of Christ. They stand on their own merits. If they are conscious of sin, they profess to bear it. We who have thrown ourselves upon the mercy of the Savior know that we cannot, in our own righteousness, stand at the judgment. But they have no such scruples. The mislived past has no terror for them. But they also profess to have no need of the church. The church is a cooperative association in which Christ has placed us because we need mutual prayer and help. But they need no prayer. They need no sympathy. They're strong enough to stand by themselves. And it's clear that those who make such imposing professions should be righteous above others. They certainly should bear the fruit of spotless character. Jane Jacques Rousseau, the 18th century philosopher, when he was dying, he said this, O thou unknown spirit, I return the soul which I received from thee as pure as when thou gavest it. The man who could speak with such assurance was surely blind to his own failings. Yet one who professes no need of prayer 
no need of the atonement and intercession of Christ, and no need of the fellowship of the church, ought to be able to say as such. But he should also bear the fruit of duty as well. An abstinence from all relation with the church does not absolve from duty. A man has his own appointed place to fill, his own great responsibilities to meet, his own tasks to perform in the world, to seek a livelihood, to win success in selfish ambitions, to attain wealth or honor. This is surely not to meet one's obligations. And at this point, success, if it goes no farther, is failure because it means cowardice to one's high destiny and to the duties which are involved in it. It's said that when the great temple of Minerva was erected in Athens, all sculptors were invited to compete in the carving of the, the great statue for its dome. And one day, on the day of the award, a famous artist brought his work. It was a life-size statue of Minerva, so beautiful that it was received and with tremendous delight. But as it was raised to its place in the dome, it grew smaller and smaller until it seemed to be a speck against the sky. The work of a poor mechanic was then unveiled, huge and unflattering. But as it was raised aloft, its deformities vanished. And it seemed more and more pleasant until reaching the dome, it seemed intimate with life. And so for the man whose work here is only life-size, who measures his duty by the requirements of time and sense. Watch it dwindle as it approaches destiny. But work for the master, wrought in simple love of doing right and growing more and more beautiful as earth, vanishes and fades and eternity draws near. Oh, let us live as if we believed in the glory of an endless life. And what is the outcome? What is the outcome? It's to be, to be unfruitful. Here is to be barren forever. To be unfruitful here is to be barren forever. You may see outside the gates of Bombay the holy yogi who in obedience to his solemn vow has held his right arm aloft so long that it has become a nerveless, shriveled thing. Its tendons are as hard as cord, the nails like an eagle's fallon and is indeed no better than dead. Yet that right arm was capable of great things. It might have plowed the field. It might have reached out in charity. 
It might have lifted the burden of the weary, but it's lost its chance. So it is ever true that unused powers are cursed with uselessness. The life of mere profession is cursed with barrenness. May no one ever eat fruit from you again, Christ said. But conversely, the reward of fruitfulness is promotion to higher tasks. We think that heaven is a a place of rest, but the rest of heaven is that which comes from loyalty to duty. Thou hast been faithful in very little, Christ said. Have thou authority over ten cities. To fight the good fight here is to be of service there. Paul had suffered many things in Jerusalem and elsewhere. He had been scourged and imprisoned and stoned. He bore about in his body the marks of the Lord Jesus. And when he was old, his reward came. And how did it come? In a season of rest? No, but in glorious promotion. There was a city of Rome where to preach the gospel meant to face the mouths of lions or the flaming sword that has borne witness of me in Jerusalem, said the master. Thou shalt bear witness of me also in Rome. You see, this is heaven. To go from noble service to noble service from fruitfulness to the the bearing of more fruit. The man who is faithful here shall be over there like a tree planted by the rivers of water. He shall bring forth his fruit in season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he does shall prosper, shall prosper forever. May God bless his own word to us this morning. Let's pray. Father God, as we now come before your table, and we remember through communion the love of your son who gave up his life for us that we might share in eternity in love forever with you, our sins forgiven. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would help us to to see and understand our duty in this life. The pretense of leaves and leaffulness without its fruit is an abomination to you. So Father God, help us to be fruitful. Help us to bear much fruit and to live this life in such a way as we are worthy of your coming kingdom. To be barren in this life is to be eternally barren. And so we pray for fruitfulness. And we pray for that in all eternity. And now be with us, Lord, as we come before your table. Help us to remember what Christ instructed his disciples in that upper room. And that night he was to be betrayed. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. For more information about Chestnut Hill Baptist Church, 
or to subscribe to these audio messages via our podcast, visit our website at chestnuthillbaptist.org. You can also write to us at Chestnut Hill Baptist Church, 2 Bethlehem Pike, Philadelphia, PA, 19118.